following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Again, that's the 15th chapter of John's Gospel. Verses 1 through 17. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. These are God's words. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so, I, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another How's everybody doing? Awesome. Good to see everybody this morning. Excited to be able to unpack God's word with you. Um, The the, the scriptures are um, oftentimes very much agriculture in nature. They use a lot of agricultural metaphors. Um, You hear Jesus oftentimes speaking of soil, good soil, bad soil. You hear Jesus talking about planting. You hear Jesus talking about seed. He uses mustard seed as an example. There are all sorts of different dimensions um, of agriculture that Jesus uses because you have to understand that they are in a agricultural culture. All right. This is a this is a culture in Jerusalem, first century, that is heavily dependent on good agriculture. And so they know these examples when Jesus speaks of these examples. In this example, Jesus speaks of a vine. More than likely, we can surmise it's a grapevine based on the ideal of fruit that needs to be produced, all right? And so the the Jewish people can very much identify with the complications that goes with having a vine be planted and remain healthy and remain productive or or remain producing fruit. Um, and the value that comes from that fruit that, that brings joy and bring enjoyment to the community, right? Because that fruit is often pressed and used to produce 
good stuff. Why? For those that are uninitiated. And so people understand the joy that comes from this fruit and the necessity of this fruit that brings joy. Here, Jesus, instead of saying, hey, we're going to talk about a, a vine, Jesus now turns the attention of the group, the disciples, in his remaining hours with them to himself once again. And he declares that I am the true vine. This is Jesus's final uh, final declaration out of the seven declarations that he made throughout this text of I am. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am that I am. And here we have, I am the true vine. This one carries the greatest pointer to the deep connection that is enjoyed between Christ and his people. I am the good shepherd. It sounds like oversight, right? Sounds like guidance. It sounds like leading. But here, there is an organic nature to this text. I am the true vine. In other words, we are in him. We're not just just being overseen by him, but we are literally in him and he is in us. We are a part of him. As a matter of fact, last week's communion was a reflection of that. Our Lord's Supper that we took was for the purposes of pointing to the gospel. That was the body that was slain for us, the blood that was spilled for us. So we eat the bread and we drink the wine, the juice to represent that. But also it is a representation of our oneness in a body. One in Christ. We are united in him. And this is the perfect picture of that. We are a part of this true vine. The death, the burial, and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ is going to usher in, rather, a new age where now through the Holy Spirit, we will enjoy the very presence of God in work in us and through us. Like we talked about last week. Chapter 14, verse 20 said, In that day you will know that I am in the Father, or I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So there is a oneness, there is an organic nature that we are in Christ as we become a part of Christ, as we give our lives to Christ. The ideal of being the true, Jesus being the true vine for the people of God does, however, carry some roots in the Old Testament. He's not just spouting this out out of nowhere. When we read, for example, in some of the prophets, Ezekiel chapter 15, for example, or or chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, we hear these words, and the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest is wood taken from it to make anything. Do people take a peg from it to hang on any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charged, uh, charred, it is useful for, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given, uh, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will set my face against them. Though they may escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them and you will know that I am the Lord. Now, that's not a great example of a vine, right? We, we, we would like to have more happy examples of a vine. This, this vine is being destroyed by God. So not a good, not a good example for the people. But, but one of the things that you have to note is that in the Old Testament, including Ezekiel, including the Psalms, including Isaiah, whenever the vine is mentioned, typically it is associated with 
Israel, the people of Israel. And when it is associated with the people of Israel, typically it's bad. God is talking about burning it down, chopping it down, tossing it in the fire, all sorts of ugly things, right? Even in Isaiah, he says a similar thing about how worthless this vine has become. This vine called Israel has become. He's talking about chopping it down. And and yet then something happens in chapter 27 of Isaiah. And this is what he says about the vine or about the vineyard in particular. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am his keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle, I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. So he goes from judging this vineyard, judging this vine, to saying that something is going to happen where this vine will flourish one day. And the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, what exactly happens that causes the vine to flourish? The true vine comes. And no longer is the vine standing apart from itself as its own respective vine, but now the vine is engrafted into the one true vine in which it shall receive all the nutrients, all the strength that it needs in order to flourish, in order to produce fruit. True vine is Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, everything changes, not just for the people of Israel, but everything changes for the people of this world. All of this was spoken, all of the things that we just read in the Old Testament were spoken in anticipation of the Messiah, the chosen one to come. And that was Jesus. And so when Jesus speaks to this idea, when Jesus makes this declaration, I am the true vine, know where he brings it from. Israel standing apart from me is what he's saying, has no sustaining life in it. It can't be sustained, it can't be kept, they will not continue to live. They will eventually die. Will, now, now they, they don't have, not only do they not have life, but they have no capability of producing fruit that is useful. Israel must be connected to me. The people of this world must be connected to me in order to flourish. That's the point of verse 4 in chapter 15. Look there with me. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. We are lifeless, fruitless branches without our connection to the eternal true vine of Jesus Christ. Our ability to produce and be sustained is directly tied to our perpetual abiding in the vine, our continuous abiding in the true vine. That's what gives us life. That's what gives us the ability to produce, being in the vine. You tracking with that? It is not a one-time connection that we can step into and then step out of and continue to live independent lives, free of God's, free of God's will in our life, free of God's commandments upon our life. No, it is a continual connection that we step in and remain in in order to receive life and be able to produce fruit. So one question I want to ask you this morning is how do we know that we are abiding in the vine? There's a couple of signs in this text I want to point you to. 
verse 2, it says, every branch, looking at the second half of verse 2, it says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bear, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abiding in him seems to have at least two different things going on. The first thing we'll focus on right now is the idea of production. Production. People that are abiding in God, that are abiding in the true vine, are producing fruit after its own kind. He says that if the branch is in me and I in him, then he, then rather it, it is he that bears much fruit. What kind of fruit are we talking about? Well, let's look at the context within this, within this scripture that we're reading and we'll find it. Number one, we can look at verse seven and we'll see that there is a prayerful dependent type of fruit that we, that we know we can produce. Verse seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, wish, and it will be done for you. So there is prayerful dependent fruit that is being produced as a result of us abiding in God. What other type of fruit? Well, verse 8 says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And so we see a gospel witness in God glorified type of fruit. It's fruit that brings glory to God. It's fruit that bears witness about God proving that we are his disciples, showing God to the world. And so it's prayerfully dependent fruit. It's fruit that is born in prayer that, 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 that the world gets an opportunity to see that it must be God in order for such a thing to happen. But it's also fruit that is witnessing about God and bearing gospel fruit, bearing gospel sprouts, so to speak. And then it's also God glorifying, God edifying fruit. And then when you look at this text, the text that we read, we obviously read 1 through 17. If you read it and you kind of leaned in and paid attention, one thing that you notice is that there was a heavy ethic of love in it, wasn't it? Look at verse 9 and look at verse 10, for example, and you see, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So the fruit is filled with love. And we'll talk about that love in just a moment. But this fruit, this fruit is God-glorifying. This fruit is evangelistic and, 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 gospel, and filled with gospel witness. This fruit, is, this fruit is love, filled with love. This fruit is filled with prayer and, and prayerfully dependent. But there's one thing that, that the Scripture does not mention that, or the, there's one thing, or rather there's a se several things that are not mentioned in this text about fruit. And I want you to hold your horses before when I start reading it. Don't get, too, don't get ahead of me, all right, because it's going to sound strange. One thing, some, some of the things that are not mentioned in Jesus' declaration about bearing fruit from the true vine are this. Numbers, financial prosperity, beauty, healthiness, all the marks that typically we would think of in this world when we think about fruitfulness, you see them nowhere to be seen or nowhere to be found in this text. Now, all of those marks, hear me, all of those marks can exist as marks of God's grace, but they have to exist, co or rather they have to coexist with the type of fruit that we read before. In other words, are the numbers, are the numbers there as a result, as a, a, are the numbers there in addition to the fruit of God being glorified and prayer being birthed 
creating fruit and the gospel being declared and love being shown in radical ways? Or just the numbers there? Is the financial prosperity there in addition to, not absent of, these things matter? These are not fruit apart from themselves or apart of themselves or, or as a result of themselves. It's not adequate measures of being in the vine. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, there's clear evidence of it in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he does what? In other words, sometimes our fruitfulness opens doors for God to trim us in order to make us more fruitful. Sometimes fruitfulness requires that we be disciplined in order to make us more fruitful. Sometimes fruitfulness requires that the numbers aren't there in order to make us more fruitful. Sometimes, the, sometimes fruitfulness requires that we aren't financially prosperous in order to make us more fruitful. Sometimes that's hard, but it makes us more fruitful. Jesus is warning his disciples as they prepare to be without him that fruitfulness, your fruitfulness will require pruning as well. There will be persecution that comes your way. There will be hardship. But as a result, you won't be less fruitful. God is here. He's going to use that in fact, he's ordaining that in order to sharpen you, mold you, perfect you, sanctify you, make you more and more and more and more and more like him and thus bearing more and more and more and more fruit after its own kind. Are you tracking with that? Sometimes numbers will be there and sometimes prosperity will be there and sometimes health will be there and sometimes all those things will be there. But if they are there, right? just as a result of pragmatism and just kind of doing what works, but they're not there as a result of genuine fruit, God being glorified, the gospel going forth, love being shed abroad, then it's not real. It's false fruit. It's false fruit. It's fruit that the world will celebrate you for. But just because the world is celebrating you doesn't mean God is there. Are you tracking with that? Another element about this, about, about knowing that we, are, that we are a part of this vine is preservation. We are, a part, we are a part of this vine as a result of lasting in the vine. And he says in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So he snatches it out. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. This raises the obvious question, can we lose our salvation? It looks like that he's saying that there are branches in Christ that he's snatching out, that there are people in Christ that he is taking out if they're not fruitful. But to answer that, we have to look at all the other texts. And you and I, we've walked through this text now for a number of months together. We've walked through John John all the way up to 15 for a number of months. And we've seen several things about God's keeping grace. One thing we saw is John chapter 6 where it says, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will who sent me. I'm sorry, this is the will of him who sent me. John chapter 6, verse 39, listen that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, 
or raise it up on the last day. That doesn't sound like you can lose anything, does it? He says, those that come to him, he will not lose. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what is being said about these branches that God seems to say, if they aren't producing fruit, then eventually they get cut off and they get tossed in the fire. And understand that that fire is referring to eternal fire. What is he saying? Well, there is a such thing as belief without believing. There's a such thing as being amongst the people of God without actually being a part of the people of God. We've seen it several times in the book of John where there are people that are with God. As a matter of fact, even in the chapter that I just read, chapter 6, there's a group of people that are following God that eventually fall off and say, okay, this is a little bit too much. Jesus' thing has gotten way too serious. You know, I thought this was a cool thing. He gave us a lot of fish the other day. I was cool with that, but no more fish, no more bread. Let's get out of here, man. Are you tracking with that? John says this in another place. In 1 John chapter 2, we've read this before. Verse 19, it says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. So they were a part of us. They were walking with us and learning with us and being taught by us and, and, and hanging out with us. They, they went to church with us on Sundays and on Wednesdays, and, 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 and they did everything that we did. And yet, at some point, they went out from us and they left us. Not left your church, left the church, all right? So don't get too crazy and too radical with this, right? People walk out of your church, you want to say, well, they're not saved because they used to. No, that's not where we're going. No, they went out from the church but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they were not all. They all are not of us. So there's a time in which, in which God can demonstrate whether or not one is in the vine just by simply seeing who last. See the same thing in Judas. Judas is the most obvious example for us right now because Judas is somewhere betraying Jesus, even as he's speaking in this text. Judas walked with the disciples, with all of them, three years and counting. They had fellowship together and they had relationship together, and he saw all the same miracles that they saw. And he saw, he saw Jesus pray the same prayers that they saw him pray. He heard the same words preached from Jesus' mouth that all the others heard. And yet, the Bible says that Satan entered him and he left. And for measly coins, he betrayed his Lord and Savior. Jesus says this about Judas in John chapter 17. As he's praying back to the Father, he says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So they are indeed folks that are in the camp, right? The son of destruction is Judas. He says, hey, every one of them I've kept, except the one I was supposed to keep in the first place. He, wasn't, he was never part of us. The one that was with us but wasn't one of us. Preservation reveals who's in the vine. Production reveals who's in the vine. 
let me ask you a question. How do you stay in it? How do you abide in it? How do you just continue to, to, to stay connected to the vine? To continue to be nourished. And I'm not talking about connected in a salvific way where, where you, you know, where, where because there's all time, there's times for all of us where we're kind of just hit and miss, man, right? But I'm talking about in order to, in order to remain in the healthiest state, what do I need to do to remain there? John chapter 15, verse 7 says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done. My words abide in you. There's a clue. How do you abide? How do you stay? My words abide in you. There's a clue. We see the analogy expand further in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now a subtle switch has been made. We go from abiding in Christ to abiding in the love of Christ. Christ is so connected with his love that he cannot abide, that we cannot abide, rather, in him apart from it. You see that? To truly abide in Christ is to be enclosed and encased in the love of Christ. Of course, that introduces another link in the chain. What does it mean to abide in the love of Christ? That brings us to the connection that we find in, G, in, in chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So, abide in Christ is to abide in, his, in the love of Christ. To abide in the love of Christ is to keep the commandments of Christ. You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Living a life where we seek to obey Christ is living a life where we are seeking to abide in Christ. For Jesus, abiding in him is living according to his words, according to his commandments. And now for the final connection, if we are called to abide in Christ by abiding in his love, and if abiding in his love means walking in accordance to his commandments, what are the commandments that we should be walking in? in order to abide in his love. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus first makes the command, you abide in me by abiding in my love. You abide in my love by walking in my commandments. You walk in my commandments by loving one another. So love for Christ is directly connected to love for each other. Abiding in the love of Christ is directly connected to abiding in love for each other. This is not a new concept to Christianity. This is not a new concept to John, the beloved apostle, the author of this gospel. This, this is the very root and the very foundation of the faith. This is, what, this is what the faith looks like, or rather the ethic of the faith. This is how we live out this faith. In fact, John writes these words in John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He says, you can't do it. It's not possible. Abiding in the love of Christ requires that we love each other. That's what Jesus just told us. John continues in chapter 4 of 1 John, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Loving God and loving neighbor are, the two, are two sides of the same coin. And these commandments are directly connected to our call to abide in him. As it so frequently does, the Christian life goes back to love for God and love for neighbor. 
As we pursue obedience to that lifestyle, love for God, love for neighbor, we are demonstrating our commitment to stay connected to the source of our spiritual lives and the source of our spiritual fruitfulness, abiding in the true vine of Jesus Christ. How will you remain? How will you be fruitful? How will you be productive in Christ? Loving. Loving. And growing, increasingly growing in your love for each other. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He steps beyond giving us the call to love like he loves by showing us what the call to love actually looks like in verse 13. It says, greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. To define love for his disciples, he points them to his own actions, signaling that love is in fact more than emotion. It is actively engaged in the lives of others. He points them to what's coming for him, laying down his life. And he says, that's what it looks like to love like me. So he speaks first of the sacrificial nature of love. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. Jesus shows us love by laying down his life for us. He took your place on the altar of God's wrath. He became the sacrifice for the sins of of all of us, the entire world, the sacrifice that should have been reserved for the world, he became that sacrifice. There is no greater love that we can demonstrate than to lay down our lives, but Jesus' love extends even beyond this demonstration because he died for us while we were in the position of enemies, and he died for us, and in so doing, he absorbed the very wrath of God that was due to the enemies of God. Romans chapter 5 says that for while, we still, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, enemies of God. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. There's a few people that will die for good people. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, not good, not good. Christ died for us. He died for you not because you demonstrated yourself deserving. That's not why he died. Not because you even earned it. That's not why he died. But while you were undeserving and hadn't earned anything, Christ died for you. And as recipients of this great love, we are now called to show forth a similar love to one another. Dr. Tony Evans says of this call to love, Jesus didn't wait until we got better to die for us. He died when we were in our most unlovely state. The person who doesn't deserve love actually needs love more, not less. If you know someone unworthy of love, that's great. You now have a chance to emulate your Savior, Jesus, because the essence of his love is unconditional, end quote. You know someone that doesn't deserve your love? Perfect. They're just like you. Now go and love them. Go and love them. That's what it means to abide in the vine. He shows us not just a sacrificial love, but he shows us a transformative love. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. So out of this love, the relationship has even been transformed. Jesus' love has changed their status. 
We are no longer merely slaves or even worse, we're no longer even enemies, but we are now friends. Verse 14 is actually built very similar to what we described on last week. And if you notice, I said we are no longer merely slaves because Paul announces himself on several occasions as a bondservant to Jesus. But it is a bondservant that has now been made friend. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you to do. Dr. D.A. Carson, one of the great theologians of our day, helps us here when he says that this is not the condition of friendship that you obey. Disobedience is not what makes them friends. It is what characterizes their friendship. In other words, you're not earning your friendship. It should just come forth out of who you are now that you've been made friends. Does that make sense? As a result of Jesus' love being showered upon us, we become friends of God and we begin to walk in obedience to God. And our obedience is a result of him changing our nature. And thus he makes us friends and we demonstrate that friendship through our obedience. He says in verse 16 that you did not choose me, but I chose you. You see that? That, that, again, is speaking to the reality that your friendship is not based on your merit and based on your activity. Your friendship with God is based on God. And as an outpouring of your friendship, love flows. Love for him flows. Obedience to him flows. And then lastly, he speaks of the revelatory nature of God's love. And he says in verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. I called you friends. But all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. His love for his disciples moved him to unveil this glorious plan of salvation to them. In other words, the mark of friendship between us and Christ is the revelation of the gospel. We are friends, and he has demonstrated that by giving us the full revelation of God's redemptive plan. How are you walking in appreciation of that pre precious privilege that you've been given? Are you loving like Jesus in this regard, making the plan of God known, the gospel of Jesus known to those around you? Are you preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel, not just to yourself, but to your fellow brothers and your fellow sisters in Christ, and then to those outside of Christ? Are you revealing God's plan to the world? That is a sign of friendship, Jesus told them. That, he, that God revealed his plan to them. So in summary, abiding in the true vine of Christ is abiding in his love, and abiding in his love is walking in commandments to his love. And walking in commandments to love is walking in the sacrificial, transformative, and revelatory nature of his love, where we look for opportunities to lay down our wills, lay down our lives for the sake of one another, and we look for opportunities to make enemies friends. And we look for opportunities to unveil the gospel of God to those around us. Tracking? That was a big summary statement out of that one thing. What does it mean to abide in Christ? But that's what it means to abide in him. Let me close this out by saying this. What rewards do you get for abiding in him? Well, obviously, there's several, several rewards, but we'll highlight just a few. One is that you get prayers answered. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So, so that whatever you ask 
the Father in my name, he may give it to you. There's two things out of these prayers that you need to pay attention to. One is that the point is God's glory. And so God is answering prayer in order that he might be glorified. So the prayers must first at their heart and at their root be aims to glorify God. There's a lot of times that your prayers don't get answered the way that you think they ought to get answered, right? You say, well, God's not listening or God's not answering. No, God is answering. He's just seeking his glory. There's sometimes your prayers get answered in the exact opposite way that you pray. You're like, you're like well, he's definitely not listening, right? <laughs> he, he, he can't be listening. He gave me the exact opposite thing I asked for. But the purpose of the prayer is that God be glorified. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples, which leads me to the second point. The second point of the prayer is fruit production. So as you pray, how is that prayer shaping you and molding you and giving you the opportunities to produce fruit for Jesus? Because those are the prayers that he's answering. Are you tracking with that? So, Maybe you could produce fruit by buying a $50 million plane. Or maybe you couldn't. So he's going to answer the prayers based on, in your life, based on whether or not it brings fruit. So sometimes he's going to answer them in ways that you don't expect. Sometimes he's not going to answer them at all. But it does not mean he's not listening. As a matter of fact, as it relates to bringing glory to God and as it relates to producing fruit in your life, he is always listening and always answering. That's the promise that we have. Those that are in the vine, if we are in the vine, walking in the vine, abiding in the love of God and sharing that love with our neighbors, then we are continually empowered to perform vine work. He's going to continue to give you what you need to do vine work. He's going to continue to give you what you need to produce fruit from the vine, and that you can remain assured of. You will have everything necessary to produce vine fruit. Then the other reward, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So, a reward of abiding in the vine is that our prayers are answered because God is building us up to bring him glory and he is building us up to produce fruit in us. But also a reward in the work is that our joy may be in him. Oh, sorry, his joy may be in us and that our joy may be full, complete, mature. And so here's the reality. So God gives us this command and he tells us that obedience to this command is what it means to abide in the vine. And abiding in the vine doesn't make your life less joyful. It makes your life more joyful. You find joy by staying connected to the vine. Now, the world sometimes is going to trick you into believing that you got to disconnect from the vine and really have fun and really have joy. So they're going to, oftentimes the world in your own flesh is going to be speaking and, and, and poking at you and prodding at you, telling you to disconnect, right? 
telling you to show just a little less love to God, show just a little less love to neighbor, have a little less patience, have a little less tolerance. Does it make sense? Live a little, so to speak, quote unquote, so that you can be joyful. But here we see that joy is found in the opposite reality. That the closer we walk with him, and the, or the, and the more we commit ourselves to obey, and the more we commit ourselves to not only loving him but loving each other, the fuller our joy becomes. Some of us are running in the wrong direction but looking for the right thing. You're looking for joy. Just, you're just taking the wrong route. Joy is in the vine. And not only is joy in the vine for this life, but joy is in the vine for the next life, for eternal life. The fullness of joy will have its complete culmination in heaven with God. In the presence of God, the Bible says, there is fullness of joy. With God, there will be a complete culmination of joy. But we, we have to go with God. And as we go with God, as we embrace him, as we trust him by faith, lay down our own lives and take on the life that he's given us, not only will we find ourselves in him, but when it's all said and done, we will find ourselves with him. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you and appreciate you. We ask, Lord, that... Um, as we are walking out this walk and living this life, Father, that you would help us, Lord, stay connected to you. Father, we, are, we all are like sheep. We're prone to wander, prone to stray, prone to lose our connection, Lord God, prone to let the love of idols replace the love, our love for you. Father, we pray by your spirit you would continue to cultivate in us and, and continue to keep us, Lord God. Continue to strengthen us. Continue to, Lord God, point us to the reality that our joy is found in staying in the vine, the true vine. That our joy is found in abiding in your love. That our joy is found in obeying your commandments to love. To love you. To love each other. Help us, Lord God. We love you. We thank you. We appreciate you. These things we ask and we pray in your son's name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.